From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. I make sure that I'm looking for potential versus existing talent, direct experience. I'm looking for hunger, drive, intelligence, things that I cannot teach. Welcome everyone to the Legends of Sales and Marketing. I'm your host, Justin Schreiber, and I'm very excited to announce today's guest, Hang Black. Hang is Vice President of Revenue Enablement at Juniper Networks. She's also recently released the book, Embrace Your Edge, a remarkable story about her journey from war-torn Vietnam in the 1970s to executive at some of Silicon Valley's highest flying companies. On today's show, Hank shares her perspective on what it takes to turn failure into an accelerant towards success. She also offers practical advice on building high-performance teams on a foundation of diversity And she breaks down her playbook, one of the best I've heard, by the way, for launching and growing world-class revenue enablement programs. Let's dive in. Hang, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Justin. So good to see you again. Well, it's great to see you. I'm really excited about this discussion. I think we are going to cover a tremendous amount of ground over the course of the next hour. I thought that we could start by going back to your childhood. In fact, I think probably one of the most harrowing moments of your life occurred back in 1975 in Vietnam. Can you paint the picture for us of what was going on at that time? Absolutely. And it's somewhat timely because, as you know, we are experiencing the evacuation of uh, Kabul right now, which is very reminiscent. So just to let you um, just to give you a background. Saigon fell April 30th, 1975. My family left April 29th, 1975. On land, that looked like eight children. My parents, that's 10. My grandparents, that's 12. In a car the size of a VW bug with my father's two army subordinates. So that's 14. Riding around for hours in the heat of the near the equator, the 17th parallel until we could find our way to the port. Once we got to the port, at that moment, we had to jump from one ship to another. And the difference in height was about two to three stories. So essentially, you would wait for one for the wave to come up and raise the smaller boat up to the freighter, at which point there was a thick docking line over the side of the ship, and you had to jump and catch it. So obviously, as a two-year-old child, I wouldn't have been able to do that. My mother had to turn to a complete stranger who tossed me yet to another complete stranger on the freighter above, where I was caught by one chubby little hand. So when there were images of the baby being lifted to the Marines um, in Kabul this week, you can imagine my phone completely blowing up. My brothers and sisters getting triggered and reminded of the moment they watched their little sister, her fate dangling uh, by, you know, by by one chubby little hand. So in a moment like that, you are utterly dependent on the people around you, people that you don't know, complete strangers. And yet you need to throw your trust into their arms. Who were some of the unlikely heroes that played a part in the escape of your family from Vietnam? Well, you know, there are many stories in Vietnam itself, but I may save them for you. You have to get the book. But I will say that once we arrived in the United States, one of the most touching stories that has really shaped me was that there was a family of four Lithuanians who were themselves immigrant who took in my family of 10. And you can imagine what that burden and courage might look like. Two weeks ago, I went back to Chicago, and it was my sponsor's 90th birthday. Um, I had not seen him since my father's death 14 years ago. And before that, I had not seen him since my wedding 20-some-odd years um, ago. And I asked him, what gave you the courage to pick up a large family like that? And he said, 
He was given a list of single men that he could sponsor. And yet he wanted the largest family that nobody else wanted because he remembered when he was fleeing Lithuania into Germany, how difficult it was to, um, to establish a new life. And he wanted to do that for us. And the eight of us now, um, are all engineers and scientists and we have that family to be grateful for. You know, it's hard sometimes to imagine the backgrounds, the stories behind the people that we interact with every day. Once you become woven into the fabric of, of normal everyday life, people just assume you've got the same background that they've got. My sister-in-law, actually, her family fled Cambodia um, during the Khmer Rouge regime and has a similar story of someone who took them in and helped them assimilate into the United States. And today, uh, my sister-in-law, my brother, they have a family. They're living the American dream. And sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to realize the incredible background and story that, that lies behind them. But it was a family that decided to take them in and help them to make a new life that completely changed the trajectory of their life and the subsequent trajectories of all the lives that they touched after that. That's absolutely right. I had a peer of mine call me after I um, put up a LinkedIn post about that birthday. And she said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I am the last of eight children from a Portuguese immigrant family who was also taken in by another immigrant family. So these stories are really shared across the board. And that's why it was really important for me when I wrote the book. I didn't write it for women of color. I wrote it for immigrant women because I want to remind everyone that immigrants come in all shades of, of white, brown, and black. Um, we come in all shades. And I also want to remind everyone that's why it's really important for us to turn around and hold and love and help the other immigrants that come behind us, no matter what shade they are. They don't have to look like us to evoke empathy. We can have empathy for anyone who shares our human experience, or even if they don't. Well, let's take a minute then and talk about the book, the name of the book, Embrace Your Edge. And it is a compelling read indeed. It goes into a lot of detail about your story. But what I love is that it draws lessons that are universally applicable, regardless of the background that you're coming from or the challenges that you face in life. You can find something in that book that's going to both inspire you and instruct you on how to be a better individual. Was that a hard undertaking to, to uh, embrace this notion of writing a book and actually see it through to fruition? Oh, my goodness. Yes. There's a reason I haven't done it until now. Um, it took a pandemic for me to, you know, get my uh, butt in seat writing. Uh, but Fingers to Keyboard was um, April 23rd. And I'm happy to say my book baby took less time to incubate than my real babies did. Um but it was, it's such a passion project for me. And I think it's such an important story. I wanted to make sure that my path, which was so much more difficult than it needed to be, um, I wanted to, people to be able to learn from it. I wanted to provide folks access that I didn't have, access being knowledge, awareness, resources, and tools, things that after 30 years of being in industry, I've had the benefit of going to conferences, of seeking a lot, a lot of therapy, even though I hate to admit it, going to executive coaches, reading many books. So all of my um, chapters are interleaved with personal stories, brain science, um, and key takeaways. So you've talked a lot about stories, and that really is the, the central component of the book that you share. I think there's so much power in stories, particularly the stories that unite us as families, as friends, as a people. I'm interested to know when, when you and all of your siblings and uh, your parents sit down, what are the stories that you share with each other? Generally, we go back to that year in 1975. And then um, we kind of walk through our past. And that's why even though I was only two years old, I feel like there's so much of my history that um, it's shaped a lot of my character because I learned so much from it. from our experience moving from, um, we were in Guam for almost a week. And then we were in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, one of the four intake cities in the United States. From there, our sponsors um, flew down to Chicago, from Chicago and brought us back. 
Um, and from Chicago, we moved to Michigan. We were there for a while, decided it was way too cold. Um, and then moved back down. So we talk about all those experiences and then growing up, literally, you know, coming to the United States with nothing but the clothes on our backs and rising up from there. You know, the, uh, that notion of telling stories to remember your past and keep it real uh, is applicable in so many different walks of life. There was some interesting research done actually on couples that come together and the psychologist would observe them. And based on the stories that they told, he could determine whether or not they would stay together. And his point was the couples that told stories about each other that went all the way back to their first meeting, that was a, an indicator of the strength of the relationship that they had. And I think that applies to families. It applies to friendships. If we have some kind of a shared past, not only a shared past, but one that is alive and living and real and that we recapture every day, that becomes a source that weaves us together and, and a, a fountain that we can continually draw from for strength. Absolutely. And I will even, I'll even um, say that if we don't have a shared experience, just being able to listen to each other can give us that compassion. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you may have a very different background than I do. I probably have a very different background from my neighbor across the street. But it's even the sharing of stories, whether or not you're part of that experience that builds that compassion for each other. So as a child, you moved around quite a bit in the United States. Certainly the challenges and travails that you would face were not over when you arrived at the shores of this country. Eventually landed in El Paso. I believe your mother actually had cancer at the time. And so uh, you're traveling there for treatment. Tell me a little bit about what it was like for you, an, an immigrant child, to move to El Paso, Texas? Well, let me start with, I had settled in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which you would think would be one of the most racially charged um, states in America. But I grew up in the Black ghettos. And I went to school with um, lower middle class um, white folks. Um, but I was held by both populations. However, I was never implicitly included nor explicitly excluded, but that's okay. I was a kid. I didn't really notice. When I moved to El Paso for that short period, what was interesting was that there were even less than 10% of Asians like me. So I was a little bit of an anomaly, which made me a big target for bullying. Um, I was on the swings by myself um, every morning. No one would play with me. And if they did come over, it was really to shove me off the swings, which happened every morning. And then in the evenings, we were um, close enough to home that I didn't have busing, but far enough that it was, you know, it's, it was a bit of a walk. So I'd wait for a while for my aunts to come pick me up. So in that time period with no teachers around, I was spat on all the time. Um, you know, it was, it was tough. Until one evening, seven girls decided to surround me and they were going to beat me up. And at that point, I just decided to lean in to the um, Asian stereotype of all uh, all chinks can fight. So I took a very solid horse stance. I put my hands up and let's just say there were no teachers around and I came up just fine. <laughs> but the net of it is, I became friends with those girls. And what I'm really proud about is in that story, Justin, when you first read it, who did you think were the seven girls? What complexion did you think they were? I assume they were probably Caucasian. Yeah. So there were half white kids and half uh, minority kids. Mm. Two groups that didn't hang out with each other at all. They just had one common enemy, me, which is someone that was just foreign and different from them. I don't mm. think they innately hated me. They just mistrusted me. It's biological. That doesn't give them an excuse. But I always say that lessons for children are caught, not taught. They watch from what their parents, how their parents act. So I, what I'm very proud about is in being friends with those individual groups, I brought them together. And by the time I left, they were friends with each other. So in both cases, you were the glue, but uh, you were able to shift the... Uh the impulse from um, you be, you were the enemy, you're the person that kind of sat in between them and brought them all together. That, yeah. took a, that took a lot of a confidence and assertiveness. Were you naturally that way or was that 
kind of this, uh, this aberration in the way that you usually behaved? Oh, good grief. Now I was, <laughs> I was insanely shy. In fact, I remember, um, when I was four years old, there was this one crayon that I loved and I tried to bring it home every day. And my teacher would say, just say, please. She just wanted me to speak one word. And for six months, I never did. I never did. So I was insanely shy. But it was a pivotal moment for me, for sure, Justin, because at that point, if I wasn't going to take care of myself, who would? And I'll be damned if I was going to let that happen to me again. But, you know, my innate compassion came out. And I knew from a very young age that a lot of times I was misunderstood because I was misrepresented. And I thought it was really important to let them get to know me. I'm actually a really kind kid. I think that uh, there are many people that struggle out there with issues related to confidence, issues related to assertiveness. What advice do you have for those people that are trying to find their way and build that confidence? How can they do that? I would say surround yourself with people who love you. Um, Really watch for diminishers. Really watch for people who uplift you. And I often think that whatever you put out there in the ether comes back to you. A lot of the times when I've been lifted in my life, in my career, it's because someone else believed in me. So um, someone else helped me. I ended up through, um, after some of the darkest parts of my career, I just got really, really damn good at what I did. But I offered advice all the time to anyone who asked me. And those people later on, made pivotal introductions for me, critical introductions that eventually led to um, movements in my career that were completely unexpected. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So I think this is a good time to talk about imposter syndrome. It sounds like you assumed a persona on the playground that you may not have been entirely comfortable with initially. And that's something that we have to do again and again in business and, and throughout life. What's your take on imposter syndrome? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And, and how have you used that in your own career? So I'm going to take a little bit of a controversial position. Um, I can't, can't take credit for it because I actually heard it from Seth Godin which is everyone should have a little bit of imposter syndrome because that means that you're striving. It means that you're humble. Now, when I think about imposter syndrome, I also think about Amy Cuddy, who has a great TED talk about fake it till you make it. But at the end, she closes with fake it till you become it. That moment when I was nine years old really shaped who, oh, I think it was seven actually, um, really shaped who I became and shaped this, the beginning of, um, confidence building for me. And I always think about when you feel that imposter, give that little girl a hug, give that young man a hug. They're curious. They're wondering. They're striving. They just need a boost of confidence. And again, you can look outside for it, but it has to come from within you. So when I look at a project and when I'm asked, um, when I'm asked to be challenged, I always think about how much do I know? And that freaks me out. And then I ask, but will I crush it? And I think, what, what have I ever been given that I haven't risen to the challenge? That I haven't absolutely crushed it. So now when my boss or someone else asks me, what's next for you? What do you want to do? And I, I tell them back, what, what do you got for me? How can I help you? I'll make it happen. You know, you just triggered a memory that I have, and I I go back to it in moments when I'm not so sure of myself. When I was in first grade, we were cooking something. And I remember the teacher said, who knows how to crack an egg? And I, I, I focused in on that question, who knows how to? And I didn't know how to, but I really wanted to be able to crack the egg. And I looked around and nobody raised their hand. And so I raised my hand. And without question, she handed me the egg and I just, I winged it and I tried to crack it and lo and behold, the egg cracked and and it all turned out and she never questioned. She never said, you didn't know how to crack an egg, did you? And that's an absurdly simple story. But for a first grader, it taught me the profound lesson that when people ask who knows how to, it's okay if you want to do it to simply raise your hand and give it a shot. 
And I've parlayed that experience of cracking an egg into applying for jobs, um, you know, going out for different opportunities and responsibilities in school. Um, If you can learn that lesson early in life, it's very powerful. That's right. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later, but a lot of um, women and also a lot of immigrants just culturally um, are shy about um, networking and personal brand. And I always tell people, if you don't raise your hand, who's going to raise it for you? Especially if you're someone who doesn't come with access, you have to build your own access. So it's really important to learn how to be comfortable self-advocating without thinking that you're self-accolating. To raise your hand in moments like that, you've got to have some level of ambition, some level of desire to move forward to learn. I want to talk also about that word ambition, because in our society, ambition is a loaded term. It can be a positive. It can be a negative. What has your experience with the word ambition been? And particularly for women, why is that such a charged term? Well, um, there's a load of gender bias when it comes to certain words that are triggering. Um, women are over, if women are ambitious, they're seen as aggressive, um, where that is seen as being assertive for men. Um, so there's this kind of neutrality that we miss, um, when we use certain words. So women are often, um, penalized for being, for having quote unquote, male dominant behaviors. Um, and I would argue many of us want to be good mothers. That's an ambition, right? So it's all contextual. Um, and it's okay for us to have different ambitions. I really look at the male female relationship in a traditional, um, gender based relationship. I look at it as far as, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you always associate the man with breadwinning and you always associate the woman with caregiving, Maslow's hierarchy says that safety and safety and security are always number one and have to be taken care of, right? So caregiving, that secondary caregiving role um, is, is a nice to have. Now, what if we disaggregate that from male-female roles? What if we said safety and security can come from a male or female? Caregiving can come from a male or female. And guess what? It can change over time. You can um you can switch roles. Then we take out that stigma. So a lot of my work is all about destigmatizing some social behaviors, destigmatizing. I talk a lot about um, you know, avoiding privilege shaming and victim blaming both at the same time. Can you talk a little bit more about that last phrase? So there are some reactions. A lot of unconscious biases are just because our biological um, setup is to be pack animals and to congregate with people who are like-minded as us, right? So if you think about, Justin, your secret circle of three to five professional confidants, what does that look like? Do they look like you with, do they look like you with a similar human experience? Now, what if you were very intentional about making sure that there was cognitive diversity in that secret circle of three to five? You don't have to be friends with the folks that are your confidants in business. It'd be nice, but you don't have to be. Now, when everyone is different, then again, everyone is the same. So I always look at when I build my teams, I build a team of unicorns and then I give them butterfly wings and make them into pegasi. But now they're all unicorns. They're all different. And, and now we have that psychological safety mm-hmm. to have divergent thoughts, to challenge each other, be it, to be innovative and creative. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I will uh, I will look into unicorn horns and and butterfly wings here. I'm not sure how that's going to go over with everybody on the team, but it's <laughs> worth a shot, right? If that's what it takes to deliver extreme performance, and why not? Um, all right, so let's let's stay in this realm of elementary school. I want to talk a little bit about the gifted and talented education program. Many of us have been exposed to that as youngsters. What was your relationship to the GATE program? Well, um, I wasn't in it, (laughs) to be clear, in elementary school. And if you think about it as immigrants, I always tested very well, but my parents didn't have any idea about that type of program, right? Um, And there were periods in my schooling where I was behind in reading, I was ahead in math, and or vice versa. And it was simply because we didn't have the support um, just in natural uh, 
you know, native speaking language, but also access to friends and family that can help the language. Um, so I wasn't aware of that program. And I always thought it was kind of weird, you know, third grade, there are two different classes, fourth grade, there are two different classes. Why? And I was always at the top of my class. Now, when I got to middle school, my fifth grade teacher handed me an application that he filled out himself that got into this more, this, um, uh, magnet middle school. And I was very not confident. So A, I didn't have access. I didn't have access to the tools and resources and knowledge to understand the value of a gifted and talented program. Secondly, I didn't have the courage and the confidence because when it came time to apply, I thought, well, geez, since it's out of my school district, how am I going to get there? I've got seven older siblings who all work. My parents both work two jobs. How am I going to get there? And then my friends were all going to this one middle school. I want to be around them. I want to be comfortable. It was probably one of the most expensive educational mistakes I made. And I got really bored at the school I went to. But fortunately for me, it was a recoverable mistake because, again, when it happened between the transition between eighth grade and ninth grade, going from middle school to high school, I had the same opportunity, same thing. A couple of teachers got behind me and they said, hey, you need to know about this program. Go ahead and apply. I was not going to make the second, the, the same mistake a second time. I ended up going to that magnet school and catching up with a lot of the kids that went to the magnet middle school. Unfortunately, I missed an opportunity to create that network early on. But again, at a young age, it's really, um, it was recoverable. So what I tell people is, you know, think about, stepping into your courage. Think about, you know, it's okay to have skin and knees and it's okay to ask questions. I self-selected out. And from that young age, I learned to stop doing so. The, uh, I think the thinking on gifted and talented has evolved. Fortunately, um, when my children were in elementary school, there was a magnet school that they could get into. And what was interesting about the magnet school was it wasn't about the testing per se, to get you in. But there were lots of hoops that the kids had to jump through, fill out an essay, show up at this time, turn it in this way. And what I realized after having gone through the process a couple of times is they were actually testing the kids and honestly, the families to see if they were willing to do the work and go above and beyond um, in order to get into the program, because that was an indicator of, of the effort that they were going to put in. Now, most of the kids that got in had parents that we're willing to stand behind them and make it happen. And that's the, that's the challenge here. The story that you described, if you don't have a situation at home where you've got parents that can support you, again, you're disenfranchised. That's right. And, you know, and this is where I talk about the conversation about inclusion and diversity is incomplete without a conversation about access. My parents were absolutely willing, but they weren't able. They were um, 46 when they came over to the United States. They're feeding a family of eight children. They're working two jobs. They're counting on the other children who could barely, you know, were learning English themselves. So, you know, there are a lot of challenges. So how do we soften that, not soften the requirement, but how do we think about um, expectations? And this goes back to best talent. When people say, I don't want to hire for diversity, I want to hire for best talent. What does best talent actually mean? Do we have requirements and expectations around universities, around um, expected support? My kids are now part of a privileged class, but I still didn't give them all the coaching and tutoring that their peers got and they're penalized for it. But I did want them to suffer a little bit because out of that builds resiliency. Um, and they had to just kind of make it till they became it as well and take ownership of it. Um, but there's a lot that's built into the system that biases towards access. So that, that term access is another really important concept to get one's head around. Talk a little bit more about why access in our society is so critical and also about what you did to get access when initially you started out without it. Sure. Um, so how many times have you heard someone say, I haven't had to interview for a job in years? What did those folks look like generally? That's access, Right. So if you listen to Chris Voss, credibility is built on two things, trust plus competence. Trust generally comes from, again, biologically, people who look and feel like us with a similar human experience. Now, 
if we make create an experience where everyone around us is different, then we're comfortable. We're flipping the script to where difference is normal. Then you then you are able to surround yourself with that cognitive diversity. On the competence side, you know it's becoming relentlessly relevant. It's becoming really really good at what you do. So on the trust side, I make sure that I build a community that knows what I do, and I make sure that. Um, everyone has a voice, um, including myself and standing up for my voice. And on the competence side, I make sure that um, I make sure that I'm looking for potential versus existing talent, direct experience. I'm looking for hunger, drive, intelligence, things that I cannot teach. Direct experience, I can get I can get my employees there. But I look for those innate qualities that are so important. Yeah. I heard you mention Chris Voss, incredible author, uh, wrote a book, Never Split the Difference, worked for the FBI, one of the the lead uh, negotiators with terrorists, and he shares his secrets and applies them to how we can uh, be more successful in any kind of a negotiation situation. So just as an aside, if you have, if you're looking for a great read, um, both great stories and great advice from Chris. Another author that I know you think highly of is Harvey Coleman. And you talk yes. a lot about his pie theory. Can you That's can you right. share a little bit about what that what that means? Pie theory also has to do with access. So Harvey Coleman talks about if you're looking for advancement, it's ten percent performance, thirty percent image, sixty percent exposure. That exposure piece, it's the it's not who you know, it's not what you know, it's who knows what you knows. So how do you, if you aren't born with access, how do you curate and create it for yourself? And again, it goes back to really knowing what your values are, getting really good at something, and then being known for it. Put it out there. Don't be shy about putting it out there. We're going to talk a little bit more about Carla Harris later on, but she is a hero of mine. And she tells a story about, uh, she's the, the, uh, co-chairman at uh, Morgan Stanley, I believe. She talks yeah. about when she started her career, she was labeled as being a little bit soft on the details and the analysis. And yeah. when she realized that's how people had labeled her, she decided to personally give herself a different label, which is, I'm tough on the numbers. And whenever someone would come to her, she would say, I just want to let you know when it comes to numbers, I am a stickler. And didn't do anything else to change her behavior besides preface her comments with that point. And when people started to hear her say that, they suddenly started to repeat that same mantra as well. And literally overnight, she went from being a little soft on the numbers to one of the most rigorous people in the firm related to that. So there is there is so much about just putting yourself out there, giving yourself the labels that you want other people to to take away. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I steal from her in my book. That's okay. She knows it. I, I, I let her know. And she was still gracious enough to write the forward for my book. Um, but she talks about adjectives. And I learned this lesson from her, which is define what your three adjectives are that are authentic to you. And the way I teach people to do it is take a, take a blank sheet of paper, write down 30 to 50 core values, then circle 10 of them. Shouldn't be that hard. That's okay. Then, then whittle it down to five. Now take a really hard look at those, those five and look at what do you want to be known for? What three do you want to be known for? And then keep using that in your language, in your attitude. Encourage people, you know, nudge them to use that language and to think of you in that way. And then it becomes authentically you and it becomes your superpower. Staying in touch or getting in touch with your superpower is really a game changer. You and I were talking before the interview about um, one of my favorite books, uh, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leaders by Diana Chapman. And she talks about something similar, find your zone of genius. The exercise that she recommends, which I, which I love, is find 10 people who know you, send them a note and say, when I'm at my best, what am I doing? And it's a little bit, it's kind of uncomfortable to do that. We don't, we don't really like to ask people for positive feedback. And so I was a little uncomfortable when I did it, but I was surprised by two things. Number one, the consistency um, of the feedback that came to me from lots of different people, both in my professional and my personal life. 
And secondly, was just how generous people were and, and willing to, to respond. It, it made a difference. And getting a little bit more in touch with what really galvanizes me has helped me to spend time doing the things that I'm naturally oriented to do. And, and I think because of that, I'm happier and the quality of the work goes up. That's right. That's right. You know, people say, talk about follow your passions. And it's really, it starts with understanding your superpower and how your superpower can serve the passions that you have. You know, um, I'm a big fan of strength finders as well. So if I take Carla's advice on the three adjectives, I take the, what I'm learning from strength finders as far as, you know, working on my strengths rather than trying to focus so hard on working on my weaknesses, then I can actually build my, I can build my repertoire of, okay, I'm a, I'm a high achiever, high activator, high learner. It actually happens to work very well with sales enablement, where all I'm doing all day is trying to get people to do stuff so that they can achieve their bookings. That's Hang Black, Vice President of Revenue Enablement at Juniper Networks. When we come back, Hang talks about one of her role models, Carla Harris, who's the Vice Chairwoman of Morgan Stanley. She'll talk about the confluence of events that brought the two of them together. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Hang Black, Vice President of Revenue Enablement at Juniper Networks. When we left off, Hang was about to talk about why she's always dreamed of meeting Carla Harris. For those of you who haven't heard Carla speak, stop this podcast right now and check her out on YouTube. She is a force of nature. She's also played an important role in Hang's career. Here's how all the pieces came together. So how did you actually meet Carla for the first time and and how did that relationship start to blossom? So I met Carla Harris through YouTube. It was again during a dark time in my career and I happened on this video uh, for anyone who's looking, it's Carla with a C, Um, Harris and I would, look up the title, Take the Lead. So she did this talk, about 16 minutes. She was wearing a red and white plaid jacket and she had a string of pearls. And I remember exactly the moment you said, Justin, where she said, you know, people accused her of being soft. And she said, well, then for 90 days, I did nothing but I walked tough, I ate tough, I talked tough, and I got to be known for being tough. And I thought, gosh, it's just so brilliant. This regal, you know, strong, funny, super intelligent person struggled in her career too. And she made it out. So I could too. And I made a promise to myself right then and there, one day I'm going to meet her. The funny thing is when you promise yourself something and you're really tenacious and persistent, it tends to happen. So um, when I eventually, um, I ended up quitting corporate, became an entrepreneur for years and when I came back into corporate, every single new hiring, new hire cohort, I had maybe about 20 to 40 a month um, for the last, gosh, uh, X number of years now, I've made everybody watch that video because it means so much to me. And when we had, I moved over to Juniper, we had sales kickoff. There was an opportunity to bring a speaker on board and I was going to make sure that her name was in the ring. Uh, we didn't get her the first year, but the second year she had a cancellation. She has a two-year queue. She had a cancellation and we were able to grab her. Um, and I can tell you that session that she had two years later, the C-suite in my company are still using the language that we learned from her. When we were um, preparing for me to introduce her, we were in the green room. I took the opportunity to chat with her for 15 minutes, share my story. And um, I, you know, asked her if I could send her a LinkedIn connection request and she gave me her email and she said, one day you're going to do something big, reach out to me, let me know what I can do. So um, November of last year, I reached out to her and I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I sure would appreciate if you would read the synopsis of my book, the framework I'm building and let me know if you'd be interested in writing a forward for me. And she did. She um, now has my book and she uh, she wrote a very gracious, gracious forward that I'm so honored like you. Um, she's one of my heroes. Yeah. You said something that really resonated with me and that is when we, when we set a goal and focus on it, we tend to achieve it. My experience, and, and tell me if this uh, holds true for you, it's not so much that 
by setting a goal, we suddenly, you know, grow wings and develop these superhuman strengths that allow us to achieve that goal. It's just that we're paying more attention to the doors that open and lead us towards that goal. And that might be, that goal might be between behind five or six doors. But if we're continually thinking about it, we just get drawn in that direction. And eventually, as you said, we figure out a way to get there. Yeah, I am. I look at it as intentionality, Justin. You know, when you go out for a run, do you get on a treadmill and just randomly run? <laughs> or do you plot a path and, and go? But the more important thing is, do you plot a path and then leave yourself room for course corrections? And that's the beauty of agility and innovation um, and giving yourself the grace to fall on your face every so often. And, you know, we've talked about this. I feel like the phrase, um, don't be afraid to fail is a little bit wrapped with, with privilege because sometimes some people don't have, um, the ability to fail. It's not an option because we only get that one chance to get out of the country. We only get that one chance to raise a loan for a business. We only get that one chance to get one shot at an internship. Um, as you know, you read the book, The Pursuit of Happiness. So if you blow that one shot, it's not great. But if you're, if you're very judicious about the risk that you take so, and you're not afraid of skin knees, you will get there. All right. So we, uh, we are through three quarters of an hour. We haven't even started to get into your career, which in and of itself is remarkable, too. And uh, for every piece of advice you have just on life and living life, you bring the same amount of firepower to the job. You decided to focus on sales enablement. And I am a tremendous advocate of the discipline. It seems like more and more there's an acknowledgement that that is the new MVP of a company and that you're able to get more dollar for dollar out of an enablement program than you can from just about anything else. So I want to definitely spend some time on the philosophies that you've developed as you've been in the career. And, and you've spent time at great companies, 8x8, Gigamon, talked about Juniper. Um, can you break down the core components of revenue enablement and, and what that platform looks like for you? Absolutely. So for me, when I look at enablement, the profession has been around for um, over 20 years, but it's evolved quite a bit. It used to be, give me some technical product training, right? And if you didn't get it the first time, you know what, throw it at me five more times and then you get all this clutter, right? So now when I looked at how enablement has evolved, it's actually become a very strategic component of how we think about our sellers from the seller's perspective to make them be the heroes. So I think about enablement as accelerating revenue by equipping our sales folks with relevant content, consistent process, and effective technology. And I have three pillars of enablement, which is ongoing. I'm sorry, onboarding. That's ramping and revving up our, our, our new sellers. It's ongoing, which is continuous improvement. And it's best practices. What do we learn from each other? But underlying all of that is talent, leadership, and culture. You cannot enable people without wanting to make them a hero. And it's not all altruistic, you know. The more you enable people without enablement fatigue, the more likely they're able to stay. If you can keep a seller past 12 months, they generally bring in one and a half to two X of bookings of a first year seller. If you can keep them past 23 months, they're bringing in three to five X a first year seller. So if you lose a 10 year seller, you're bridging gaps of years, not months. So, you know, it's not only the right thing to do, it's the right business thing to do as well. So if I look at enablement, I can think about it as years ago, it used to be you just give each person individual packets of knowledge, individual packets of, uh, you know, fixing one process at a time independently. But then it became this engine of like this box of gears, but they're all misarranged gears, right? So now we, now we start forming big vehicles of transportation. So instead of the little UPS package, you get big vehicles, you get, you know, airplanes and trains and um, it, that, that can, that can provide accessibility to our sellers on what they need to be successful. Now where we are with enablement is being that flight control tower. You can still have that highly curated package that's created by someone in their garage and delivered, um, sold on Etsy and delivered, uh, hand delivered to the door. But then you can also have content that's work streamed into big processes. You get to go in the Concord, 
once every three hours. You get to go every two, two weeks. You get to be on the Pony Express once a month. So we're prioritizing and sequencing what our sellers need in the voice of the seller, making them the hero so that they can make their customers the hero. I liked what you said about moving beyond just the mechanics and really helping to transform managers into inspirational leaders. That's a, that's a high bar. How do you actually do that with the teams that you work with? Well, um, I remember my last two bosses have been very, very good about, you know, again, when I had that imposter syndrome, they always tell me, look, you are the queen of enablement. You got this and just build, just build a good engine and they'll come. So we're very thoughtful about how we create for our sellers because we co-create with them. We're always checking in, in, in with them. I don't know the best way to do their job. They know the best way to do their job. So I'm checking in with them to make sure, what do you need? What can I deliver for you that will make your life easier? Because when we talk about customer centricity, we're really thinking about how do we make it easier for the customer to buy? And what I've really found over the years is making it easier for the customer to buy means make it easier for the seller to sell. And part of that is this continuous life cycle. It's not just a linear sales process anymore. You can go into, um, you start with awareness and then you get into the buying cycle, the nurturing, um, the proposal, the commitment, the close, but then you have upsell, cross-sell. You've got renew. You can enter and exit at any part of the life cycle. And that's why we've moved from sales enablement to revenue enablement. We're engaging our sales engineering team. We're engaging our sales team. We're engaging our partners and we're engaging our customer success teams throughout the entire life cycle. So let's talk a little bit about talent, the raw material that you work with in your enablement program. You've seen a lot of sales professionals in your day. You've seen a lot of managers. What are the qualities that tend to distinguish the great ones from the mediocre? So I heard Shashri Sitarong. I know he didn't create it, but I love the um, acronym that he uses. He said, he only hires PhDs, poor, hungry, and driven. So if you look at my team, for instance, there are a few ex-engineers. There are definitely a few ex-quota carriers. I also have dancers. I have singers. I have actors. I have sommeliers. I have people with different backgrounds, but the one thing that unifies them is their structural thinking their um, compassion and their willingness to build. And they just work really, really hard. They're super intelligent. They want to work smart um, and work hard at the same time. So that's kind of what I hire for. And as with anything, um, you manifest what's around you. Diversity begets diversity. Um, drive begets more drive. We, we keep each other creative. We keep each other at a high bar. Those are some great qualities, and I agree with you. There's something about hunger, but but hunger not necessarily for recognition, um, more hunger just to stretch yourself and achieve and do work that you really feel proud of, uh, combined with intelligence that that is uh, delivers amazing results. So as I step back, we've covered so much ground in the discussion from life lessons around confidence and building that confidence access, uh, some, some lessons learned about enablement. You've, you've distilled your, your own learning process down into a framework that you refer to as the three R's. And I wanted to make sure we talked about that because in my mind, that's kind of the bedrock of what you use to translate a lot of tough things in life into lessons that propel you forward. Can you share a little bit about what the three R's are and how you use them? Absolutely. So the three R's stand for reflect. Take a look at where you are, where you've come from. How does it shape how you think? And then recalibrate. Does it address where you want to go today? What can you keep with you that will continue to serve you? And what do you need to let go of that no longer serves the story you want to tell? leaving room for course correction. And the last one, reset. That's where the hard work comes in. That's the difference between doing and dreaming. It takes the work with intention to get to where you want to go. And you have to start, you know, it could be one epic leap. It could be in baby steps, but just start resetting and taking those steps forward. 
What I love about that is the emphasis is all about pulling yourself out of the moment when you might be stuck in a rut, just moving forward robotically to really assess what's going on in your life. Be honest with yourself if life is not taking you in the direction you want to go. And then being willing to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work and change your direction and build that momentum up going in the new direction where you want to go. That, that is hard to do. And it requires a deliberate mindset in order to be successful at it. That's right. That's right. I mean, why would you suppress a rosebud from trying to blossom? <laughs> well, that is a great note to end on. I'll, I'll leave you with my final question. I like to ask all my guests the same. As you look back across a remarkable life, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? Courage. Absolutely. My parents' courage to make very hard choices during moments of crisis and the courage they instilled in all of us to do the hard thing, not only do the right thing, but do the hard thing. You know, it takes walking through the fire in able to, in order to um, emerge as a phoenix. Hank, thank you so much. It's been an inspiration. Well, I appreciate uh, your having read the book. You actually did a lot of the homework. We had hours of discussion about it. And I thank you for paying it forward yourself as well. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.